Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Ephesians chapter 5. To Ephesians chapter 5. Um, and we're continuing on in the book of Ephesians. We've been going through the Ephesians for some time now. And we've been in chapter 5 the last couple of weeks as we have been looking at the topic of sexual sin. The last couple of weeks we've been looking at the topic of sexual sin because that's where we are in the book of Ephesians. So I want to, before we get started, I want to read to you Ephesians 5. Can I read you the text we've been covering over the last four weeks? Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 8. This is what the Word of God says. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And over the last four weeks, what we've seen from this text is how important your sexuality is to God. Over the last four weeks, what we've seen is that sexuality is incredibly important to God. And we've learned from the scriptures, primarily it's important because God designed sex in a marriage between a man and a woman to represent, to display Christ and the church. Sex was created by God in marriage for what purpose? To display the devotion, to display the unity, to display the love that Christ and his people have for one another. It's no small thing. There is nothing more central, nothing more prominent in the scriptures or in history for that matter than the story of God and his people. And sex is designed to display that in marriage. This is why Paul so often talks about it in the New Testament. Almost more than any other topic in his epistles, he addresses the topic of sexuality because it has everything to do with your understanding and my understanding of our relationship with God. So last week, last week we addressed the topic of pornography. And this week we're going to answer the question, is homosexuality a sin? Is homosexuality a sin? A sin. And as, as, I, as I say that, before we get into it, as I say that, if you find yourself feeling uncomfortable, fearful, even angry, all I can ask of you is that you wouldn't assume that you know what I'm going to say. That you wouldn't assume that you know what I'm about to say, that you give me the benefit of the doubt and just hear what God's word says and, and just trust that God has good for you today. Because the reason we're, and out of all the topics out of all the topics, the reason we picked pornography and homosexuality is for these reasons. Because last week, Matt talked to us about how pornography is probably the most pervasive sin in the church. It's everywhere in the church. And the topic of homosexuality is probably the most divisive and most sensitive topic in the church. Now, before I go on, it bears repeating something we've already said during this sermon series, that the commands of this text, the commands of the scripture we write that we're going to read today 
are primarily for believers. They're primarily for believers. They're for those who've already trusted in Christ. They're for those who've already experienced the unmerited forgiveness of God, the unparalleled love of God, the unshakable call of God. If you haven't experienced those things, these commands are not primarily for you. These are not primarily for those who have yet to bank their life on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because no morality, no matter how strictly you obey it, can bring you back to God. So if you don't know Jesus, we always start and we stay with the command to trust Christ. And once you trust him, then we call people to obey these things. This is primarily for the church. Now there are a few topics, a few topics in our society and in the church at large that are as divisive and as sensitive as the topic of homosexuality. And there's so much confusion, so much misinformation being circulated even among Christians, so much so that every single person, every single person who's talking about this topic from every vantage point, from every perspective, seems to be saying that their way is the way to be faithful to God. No matter where they fall, everyone's communicating their stance, their perspective as the way to be faithful to God. And so what happens, this has made it, it's become increasingly more difficult for Christians to know what to believe, to know what God has actually said. And so here's what I've noticed with all the confusion. What I'm noticing is that it's beginning to become one of these topics that we're kind of saying, well, we'll just agree to disagree. It's becoming one of these topics that we're beginning to like lump into like conversations about worship styles. I like this one, you like that one, we'll just agree to disagree. But we cannot have that attitude when it comes to the topic of sexuality because it's so important in the Bible. Because sexuality is meant to express the unity, the devotion, the love Christ and the church has for one another. So this topic is really important theologically, but the problem has only been amplified by how poorly the church has handled it. By how poorly the church has handled it. We we haven't been clear in the teaching of the word about this. And we haven't treated those most affected by the scriptures on this topic with love and respect and empathy. See, what I've noticed is we fail to clearly teach the Bible and not our personal opinion and not our bias and not our desire. Like in this topic, for some reason, I've just seen this in my own eyes, that we tend to be silent where the Bible's really clear. And we tend to be really bold and vocal where the Bible's silent. And so everyone's confused. And, and on top of that, we tend to talk to people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, experiencing same-sex attraction, and we talk to them either condescendingly, as if they are worse than us, or we talk to them cowardly. We don't tell them the truth of God's word. And so when you look at this in the church, it has honestly just been a huge mess for the church. Now, I say all that. I say all that not primarily as a pastor, I say all that not primarily as an onlooker, not primarily as someone who's reading articles about it. I say it primarily because I've seen it firsthand. This topic is incredibly personal for me. Incredibly personal for me. I have a family member of mine who I love very much, who I'm very close to, who's been walking through this for some time. Who's been walking through this for some time, and I've had the privilege and still have the privilege of walking alongside of them and helping them process through their same-sex attraction, helping them process through what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what I've seen, just being around them and talking to them, is they have gotten so many conflicting reports as to what God wants from them. They've received so much different counsel from people they love and respect 
And here's what's been hard for me. They're hearing things, they're hearing counsel that has a kernel of truth. A kernel of truth. But it's smothered in all sorts of false notions of grace, false notions of what the Bible says, false notions of what it means to follow Jesus. And so because of this, because it's someone that I love in this, there probably has been no topic that I've thought about more that I've prayed about more, that I've talked about more, that I've studied about more than this topic. When I asked my wife, Lauren, before I was writing this sermon, because, you know, preachers can be prone to hyperbole, I said, hey, is this true? She said, absolutely. And I tell you that not, not because it makes me an expert, but because I want you to know this is not something I did to preach a sermon. I haven't been thinking about this to write a paper. I've been thinking about this because there's someone that I love who is dealing with this, wrestling with this, trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of all this confusion. So I want you to know this topic is important, not because we need to debate it in society. It's important because it affects the lives of real people with real desires and real pain and real dreams and real stories. So we have to be faithful to the Bible, but we have to be mindful of how what we're saying and what we're communicating affects the people around us. And God knew, God knew that we as a people collectively would be prone, would be prone to believe misinformation about sexuality. Like, although God saved us, although he's made us new, we still have corrupt desires. We still have corrupt past experiences. So God knew that we would be prone to believe misinformation about sexuality. He knew that we would need him to speak clearly to us and give us instruction on this topic. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, for you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you. The first century church wasn't any different than us. In their church, there were all sorts of ideas floating around as to what honored God with your sexuality, what you could and could not do, just as it is now. It's no different. We, we haven't had some, some golden age in sexuality ever. There's always been misinformation. There's always been distortion in the church, always. So don't have the mindset that now we're in some really evil time. That's not true. It's always been this way. Let no one deceive you, Paul says. And I could show you in Ephesians 5, I could, that there's instruction for us on the topic of homosexuality, but we would need to do some Greek word studies to do that, so I'd rather go to a text where it's really explicit. I'd rather go to a text where Paul, God through Paul directly addresses this topic. He directly addresses this topic, and I want to choose this text because it's, I think, clearly and succinctly describes what the Bible says about the topic. So you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, and I want you to see this because I want you to see, this is from the word of God, this is not the Austin Stone, this is not Tyler trying to tell you what to believe, I want to show you, I'm trying to teach you what the word of God says. So 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, this will be the majority of the time, 9 through 11, that's what Paul says, says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Here's that line again, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So from this text, I want to give you three biblical truths to direct you on this topic of homosexuality. Three biblical truths that are sufficient to guide you in conversations. Because here's what truth does. Truth does not replace conversations that need to be had. It doesn't replace them. It just guides and directs them. So whether you're helping a friend or a family member who's working through this, or whether you, you yourself are working through this, this is God's word for you. Here's the truth of God for you. Here's the first truth from this text. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. The key word in that text, the key word in that text is the word practice. Practice. Paul says nothing here about people in the church being in sin simply based on attractions they feel. He doesn't say that. It's clear now, it's clear in the text that if that attraction manifests into a sinful desire and then manifests into a sinful action, then yes, it's sin. But it's also clear that if you simply experience same-sex attraction or orientation or whatever term you like, you're not sinning. You're not sinning. The emphasis is on practice. We see Paul make the same distinction in 1 Timothy 1. In 1 Timothy 1, he's writing to a young pastor in a large city. He's telling him what the word of God is used for. He tells him the word of God shows us our sin. And he lists off sins the word of God shows us. Let me pick it up in the middle of that list. 1 Timothy 1.10. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, the Bible condemns every sexual act done outside of a marriage covenant. That includes homosexual acts and heterosexual ones. But what is clear is when if someone experiences same-sex attraction, are they sinning? The answer is clearly no. From the text, the answer is clearly no. He's emphasizing the practice. Now if the attraction, once again, goes into lust and into an action, then it's sin, sure. But the attraction itself is not. So let me speak really, really clearly for us as a church. If you're in here and you experience same-sex attraction, you should not feel the guilt and the shame that would associate sinning. You should not feel it. If you do, if someone tried to make you feel that way, they're wrong for that. In the same way, if, if for me, if I feel attraction, if I have attraction towards a woman who's not my wife... That is not a sin on my part. It is a sin if that turns into lust and that turns into an action. But just simply having that attraction is not a sin. And so if you're here and you have that and you experience that, you should talk to somebody about it. You shouldn't feel the need to cover that up or to hide it from, from anybody. No, we should be a place where you can talk about that. Because it should not be a sense of shame in that it's a sin because it's not. It's absolutely not. So I would highly encourage you to talk to somebody you know, who you love, or talk to one of our pastors or leaders here at this church, because you're not in sin for having that attraction. That's the first truth from the word of God, is that same-sex attraction is not a sin. 
Here's a second truth. Here's a second truth. Homosexual acts, no matter the context, are sin against God. Homosexual acts, no matter the context, are sin against God. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. While the attraction itself is not sin, to partake, to partake in any sexual activity with a person of the same sex is sin. Just like every heterosexual act done outside of marriage, it is sin. Now here, I need to make two important distinctions. I need to make an important distinction. It's important to note that in this list, homosexual acts are not some distinct category of sin. They're not some distinct category of sin, as if they're worse than other sins. They're in the list, but they're not set apart as if it's worse. And I can tell you that for my family member, nothing has made me more sad and more angry than when someone communicates to them, either explicitly or implicitly with tone, as if their sin is really, really, really serious, like way more serious than other sins. I think that is, at best, that's bullying somebody when you do that. At best. When someone tries to communicate to them, this is somehow worse, it's not. It's in the list like everything else. But also, too, the other important thing to note is that there are no exceptions to it. There are no exceptions to this sin. There is not an exception if the people really love one another. The exception's not in there. In the same way, the exception's not in there for adultery. Adultery is not okay if you love one another. It's not in there for sexual immorality. It's not okay if you really love one another and you're eventually going to get married. And it's not okay for homosexual acts, even if it's done in the context of a monogamous, committed, loving relationship. It is still sin against God. That's what God's word clearly says. So homosexual acts, no matter the context, are sin against God. Here's the third truth. The third truth from this text. The last, last truth from this text. Your sexual attraction and your sexual history does not define you. It does not define you. Jesus does. Jesus does. Look, let's read the text together again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to the statement. And such were some of you. That's who you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No matter who you're attracted to, no matter what sexual sins you've partaken in, your primary identity is that you are a son, you are a daughter of God. You See, you have to hear me on this. Our, our culture tells us all the time as if we are fundamentally sexual beings. And that's not true for the Christian. You're not fundamentally a sexual being. What's, what's told to us is that true happiness for a human, because we're so sexual, is sexual expression. But that's not fundamentally who you are, Christian. Fundamentally who you are is you are a son or daughter of God, bought by the precious blood of Christ, by the power of the living spirit of God. That's who you are. You are cleansed from guilt. You're cleansed from shame. It says you're sanctified. You're set apart for God himself. 
No matter your sexual attraction, that does not own you, that does not define you. God does. God does. So these three truths, these three truths are like rails that keep us bound to what's true, what's biblical, and what's God-honoring. These three truths keep us from being deceived. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Homosexual acts, no matter the context, are sin. And your fundamental identity in Christ is a son or daughter of God, not a sexual being. Now, with this text, I think if you read it and you really looked at it, I don't think it's hard to come to these conclusions. I think it may be difficult depending on your history, your story. But the text itself is pretty plain and pretty clear. I think when it gets difficult is when you begin to apply these texts. It gets really complicated when you begin to apply these truths. Because these truths are going to affect the lives of those who experience same-sex attraction greatly. They're going to affect their lives greatly. And this is where the church has got to be more helpful than we've been. We have to be. There's so many things that we need to work on, like showing kindness and patience, of being more thoughtful about the way we talk about this, being more thoughtful about the way we joke about certain things. There are a thousand things we could talk about what we need to do better when it comes to this topic. But I think there's something deeper than all those things. I think there's something deeper than all those things. There's something underneath all of our ineffective attempts to be helpful about this topic. And I think our fundamental flaw as to why we're not very helpful has to do with our own relationship with Jesus. It has to do with our own relationship with Jesus. See, when it comes to following Jesus, I think the, the fundamental problem is that we want to follow Jesus and find a way to follow him where it doesn't cost us anything. We really want to find a way to follow him where it doesn't cost us anything. We want to find a lifestyle where we can have Jesus and everything else we've ever wanted. We want to find a lifestyle where we can have Jesus and everything else we've ever wanted. We want following Jesus to be a path of serenity with no strife, no pain, and no sacrifice. See, bottom line, the reason we struggle to care for people who have same-sex attraction is because we don't want to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We really don't want to die to self. But the truth is, there is no other way to know Jesus. There's no other way. Jesus is super clear about this. Matthew 10, 38, listen how he talks about it. Jesus says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. it is not worthy of me. One of the best ways, one of the best ways we can help those who have same-sex attraction and those who are in homosexual relationships is to keep taking up our cross. It's to keep taking up our cross. And the reason I say that is that for most people who have same-sex attraction, following Jesus is going to cost them a lot. It's going to cost them a lot. For many of them, it may mean a lifetime of singleness. For many of them, it may mean losing friends they've had for a very long time. For many of them, it's going to mean painful, agonizing moments that you cannot relate to. 
that you cannot relate to. And the church, the church needs to offer our own stories of how we are taking up our cross and following Jesus. Our own stories of what it's costing us to follow him. See, the story of the church should not be that certain people have to deny themselves in significant ways while everyone else does whatever they want. That should not be our story. Our story should be as a people that although our cross may vary from person to person to person, the similar narrative is that we're all actively taking up our cross and dying to self in all the ways God's calling us to. That should be our story. See, taking up your cross in this topic, with this topic, it makes you humble yet confident in the word of God. When you actually take up your cross, it makes you humble yet confident in the word of God. But if you're not taking up your cross, if you're not sacrificing anything to know Jesus, then when it comes to the topic of homosexuality, your counsel will tend to either be severe or timid. Your counsel will tend to be either severe or timid. And both your severity and your timidity do so much damage to people. They do so much damage to real people who are wondering, what does it mean to follow Jesus? See, when you take up your cross, it produces humility. See, humility comes when you deny yourself real desires that you have in order to follow Jesus. Like real desires, Real desires for safety, real desires for comfort, real real desires for approval. And you say, I'm not going to listen to those things. I'm going to follow Jesus. It humbles you. Why? Because you begin to realize how fickle you are in your devotion to Jesus as soon as it costs you something. You realize how fickle you are. As soon as it costs you something, you want to roll. I want to roll. See, it humbles you because you realize how often you and I love feeling convicted, but we never do anything about it. How often I have written down in my journal things that I want to grow in and how often I've done nothing about it. It's humbling. It's humbling to see just how often we want to take this cross off and not follow Jesus. See, carrying your cross takes away all sense of pride and self-reliance. All sense of pride and self-reliance. And it gives you an increased patience, an increased kindness, an increased compassion to those who are struggling to bear their cross. Why? Because you get it. You get it. And the reason you have increased kindness and patience is because every time you fail to obey, what does Jesus have for you? Kindness, patience, grace. So you know how to mimic that behavior to other people because you know when you fail and you take the cross off your shoulders and you don't obey, what does Jesus have for you? Grace. So when you see other people struggling to obey, what do you have for them intuitively? Grace, because you know. You know. But if you don't consistently experience this kindness, this grace of Jesus when you fail to obey, you're going to struggle to be humble in this area. And if you're not humble, you're going to be overly severe in your counsel to others. I've seen this firsthand. You, you, you'll find yourself being pretty heavy-handed with people. You'll have unrealistic expectations of what repentance should look like. You'll place unreasonable expectations that they should change instantly. All of a sudden, you begin to feel like, well, I don't know if they know Jesus. Why? Because they sin? Kind of like you? 
all of a sudden you'll find yourself getting frustrated, even angry with them. Why? Because you haven't taken up your cross, so you feel pretty confident. You feel pretty strong. And they should be like you. That's what that is. And when we're severe like that, and that's your counsel towards people, can I tell you, probably what's happening is that your relationship with Jesus is defined by you doing whatever you want. That's usually what it's defined by. Usually what that means is you and I have probably chosen a lifestyle or a prayer life or a level of generosity or a Bible reading plan or a place where we live or what we spend. We made all those decisions and they probably wouldn't be much different if you weren't a Christian. You've made all these decisions in your life and you've basically made them not to follow Jesus. You've made them based on your personality, how you were brought up, your income level, but you haven't made them based on what does it mean to follow Christ and advance his kingdom. Because we'll be severe in our counsel when we're obeying just enough to not feel shame and guilt, but never enough to sacrifice. Never enough to stretch. And so when you don't do that, you don't get to experience, you probably don't fail as often, you don't feel like you fail very often because the bar's so low. But when you raise the bar higher and you try to obey all that God's called us to and you fail, what do you get to experience? The grace of Jesus. The kindness of Christ. So when you take up your cross, it makes you humble when you talk about the topic of homosexuality. But also, too, it makes you confident in the word of God. Bearing your cross makes you confident in the word of God. See, it's one thing to cognitively know that God is better, that he's trustworthy, And it's an entirely different thing for you to experientially know, no, he really is better. He really is better. It's it's one thing to know God's word is trustworthy. It's another thing to see his word and see it commands you to do something that everything in you does not want to do, but to obey anyway, trusting he'll take care of you. And on the other side of that obedience, be reminded he was not holding out on me. He was not holding out on me. His word is trustworthy. See, when you bear your cross, you begin to realize that death to self means abundant life with Jesus. That less and less of you and of me means more and more of him. But without this growing confidence in the word of God, you'll begin to be overly timid in your counsel when it comes to homosexuality. You'll find yourself being persuaded by arguments and thinking, surely God wouldn't, surely he doesn't mean that anymore, right? And the reason is, it just sounds so crazy. Surely he would never take anything away. That's not like God. Surely he would never ask me to obey in any area I didn't want to. Surely he would never say that. And here's what you think you're doing. You think you're being kind. You think you're being loving. But really what you're doing is you're cheapening the cross of Christ. And you're saying his death purchased some authority, but not all of it. You're saying his death, he can speak into certain things in our lives and into our culture, but not into this. It's mine. You're cheapening his cross without even realizing it. See, when you're timid like that, and I've seen this from personal experience, I've seen this clear as day. When you're timid like that, it's typically because you have your own sins you don't want to give up. You have your own secret things you don't want to give up. 
So you don't want to hold them accountable because you don't want to be held accountable. You want to believe in this counterfeit form of grace where Jesus likes you just the way you are and he never wants to change you. You don't want Jesus to mess with your life. You want to live in a world where I'm okay, you're okay, God doesn't care. That's usually why we're timid and yet we're cheapening his cross all the way. So the first step for us as a church, the first step for us as a church when it comes to this topic and helping those who have same-sex attraction is to make sure we're carrying our cross. To make sure we're carrying our cross. The first step is not to work on your arguments. The first step is to make sure you're doing what you're going to call other people to do. And it's when we do that that I think we will become that peculiar people the gospel enables us to be. Because on this topic, you know this as well as I do. Your two main options are either total acceptance or total rejection. When it comes to the topic of homosexuality, typically your only two options, it seems like, are total acceptance or total rejection. And the gospel enables us to be a third way. It enables us to be this people who have the most amount of kindness and grace and compassion to those who are struggling, to those who've been hurt, to those who've been wounded, to those who are trying to obey Jesus with their sexuality. And it enables us to be a people who will not be deceived by the words of this world, who will cling to the word of God no matter what anyone says, God's word is true. So I want to close, I want to close by commending that you do two things, that we do two things as a people we're attempting to help people who experience same-sex attraction. Here's the two things. Share your specific cross-bearing stories and make Jesus the goal. Share your specific cross-bearing stories with them and make Jesus the goal. See, when, when my family member first started dating someone of the same sex, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't know what the best tactic was. And so for those of you who know me, this won't surprise you. I preached the first time. I just kind of sat down and preached for, like, I'm sure, 20 minutes or something like that. It wasn't that helpful, by the way. Um, but I remember I sat down, and I just told them the gospel, and I gave every persuasive argument I could muster. That, that was my, my, it may not be yours, that was my default response. But after months and months and months and months of conversation with them, after hearing more of their story, hearing, hearing the things that, that people have said to them, and you're like, oh, I'm so sorry someone said that to you. Hearing what really scared them about following Jesus, hearing what it was going to cost them, I began to realize that they do need to hear the gospel from me, but they need something more than that. They need to hear the gospel. They, they needed to hear who Jesus is for them, what he's done for them. They need that. Everyone needs that. But they in particular need, needed me to share my own stories of how I'm bearing my cross. They needed to hear stories of how I'm trying my best to follow Jesus, even when it costs me something. And they, and they didn't need stories that were like years ago. You know, stories that you had a struggle, God gave you victory, and now you're great. Not that story. They needed the story of this week where you're still a mess about it. They need the story of how the cross feels heavy for you and you're trying to trust God that he's not going to tempt you beyond what you can bear. They need those stories. 
I remember during one of the most difficult conversations of my life with them, where after months and months I knew I had to say some difficult truths to them. Before we even talked about their same-sex relationship they, they're in, um, I started by sharing with them how I'm struggling to fight my sexual sin. I shared with them how that week I was trying my best to fight my sexual sin, these desires that I have that are contrary to God's, God's word, and how I had even failed that week. And how I was struggling to believe that Jesus actually forgave me. I shared with them more intimate details of my life. I shared with them the struggle of trusting God after he took away one of our babies in a miscarriage. And I shared with them how we were, me me and Lauren were trying our best to trust, oh God, you're good, even if you take things away. Even if you take away children. And, And let me tell you why I share those stories. I want you to hear me clearly. I didn't share those stories because our crosses are the same. Because they're not. Their cross to bear and my cross to bear are not the same. This person that I love, if they actually repent of their sin, can I tell you, I'm still in the midst of this. This is not like, hey guys, victory story. No, we're still in the midst of this. And I, I've shared this whole sermon with them. I said, hey, I want to share this story. And they were fine with it. But if they repent of their sin and leave that relationship and start following Jesus, it's going to cost them way more than following Jesus has cost me. It's going to. It's going to. And can I just say something else as a church? You don't need to feel insecure if someone's cross is heavier than yours. You don't need to somehow justify and say, no, 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 but we both give up things. Yeah, we do, but theirs is harder. They are going to have to give up things and go through things I have yet to go through for following Jesus. And we as a church need to just recognize that and say, Jesus gives different stories to different people. And we need to recognize when someone's going to do something that we've never been through, it's going to be harder than what we've ever gone through to follow Jesus. I, when I came to know Christ, everyone applauded me. If they choose to follow Jesus on this issue, they are not going to be applauded. They're not. And I know that. And so it's not that our cross to bear is the same. It's not. But I'm sharing stories of my cross bearing so they know they're not alone. So they know they're not the only one giving anything up. And so they know, I've told them this, I'm sure there's coming a season for me where I'll have to give something up I've never had to before, and it'll be really hard, and I'll need them to encourage me in those seasons. That's what we need. So church, you need to share your stories of cross-bearing with other people. And some of you, honestly, you're obeying Jesus in really significant ways. You really are. And, and we don't think about life in terms of cross-bearing, so you may not have the vocabulary, but Right now, if you are fighting to obey Jesus and forgive somebody, forgive a spouse, even though everything in you wants vengeance, that's bearing a cross. If if you're doing your best to love your neighbors, even though everything in you wants to go home and everything in you doesn't want to be an awkward conversation and everything in you wants to watch TV, but you're hanging out with your neighbors anyway, you should share those stories. That's a cross you're bearing. If you're giving away money in a way that you struggle with, that every time you give it away, you feel like I'm losing security, I'm losing significance, but you're doing it anyway, you're trusting Jesus. You need to share those stories. You are bearing your cross. In all the the big ways and the small ways, when it comes to this topic, we need to share our stories of how we're following Jesus. But if you don't have any stories of this, like if you're sitting here like, okay, 
I can't think of anything I've been really giving up to follow Jesus. It may mean, honestly, you've just forgotten. It may mean that you've just forgotten. You need someone to help you remember, hey, no, this is how you're following Jesus. I've seen this in you. That may be it. But also, church, it may be that you haven't followed Jesus in a long time. It may be you have read your Bible and come to church, but you haven't really obeyed him in a really long time. And can I have, I have good news for you. If that's you, guess how Jesus responds to you? Grace. You're not loved because you take up a cross. You're loved because he took up a cross. That's why you're loved. So when you've had the cross off your shoulders for a long time, you know what Jesus does? He goes, hey, I've forgiven you. I love you. Let's get back on the path. Let's go. He's not angry. He's not mad. He has kindness and patience and grace for you so that you can pick your cross back up and follow him because if you don't carry your cross, you are not worthy of him. You're not worthy of him. So we need to share our stories. And lastly, lastly, we have to communicate that the reason anyone should bear a cross is to have Jesus. That's the reason. The goal for those who have same-sex attraction is not that they would be straight. It's that they would have Jesus. What a poor God marriage and family and kids is compared to Jesus. Nothing has broken my heart more than with this person I love. People say, well, you're going to miss out on marriage if you go that way. Who cares? Who cares? You're going to miss out on Jesus. He's the reason we do any of this. Everything else pales in comparison to him. We're not doing it so people can get married. We're doing it so people can have Christ. He's worth it. He's the only reason. If you don't have Jesus and you don't want him in his kingdom, why repress any desire? But if you have Jesus and his kingdom to come, he's worth giving up whatever you have to to have him. To have him. So if it means being single, he'll be worth it. If it means being ridiculed, he'll be worth it. Whatever it means, he will be worth it. He'll be worth it for everyone who takes up the cross. That's the goal of the church. To take up our cross for as long as he gives us in this life till he comes back and he makes every sacrifice worth it. I want to end with the promise of Jesus to everyone. Same-sex attraction, Opposite sex attraction to everyone who gives up anything to follow him. I'll close with this. This is the promise of the risen king of the universe. He reigns over everything. This is what he says to anyone who gives up anything for his sake. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or fathers, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. That's his promise. He'll be faithful. And that day when you take that cross off, and you see him, he'll be worth it. Let's pray.
Father, the call of Christ is to a road where we die. The call of Christ is to come get the greatest treasure in the universe. But you'll have to leave things behind in the process. And God, I would ask you that you would make us a people who hear that. And though it's difficult, and though it's costly, and though it's hard, we'd be strangely drawn to you in the midst of it. That we'd have your spirit reminding us of your word, reminding us of promises that there is no sacrifice for your sake, God, that will not be worth it. God, would you help those of us who experience same-sex attraction? Would you help us be honest and open about it, not hide it? Would you help us follow you faithfully? Would you help us repent of sin? Would you help us as a church repent of all the things we've loved more than you? And would we stand in awe that every time we drop the cross, every time we love self more than you, every time we buy the lies of this world more than your word, that Jesus, you are standing there with kindness and grace and mercy for your people. So much love that it makes us want to get back on the path, back to following you, back to sacrifice. God, I ask that you would use this church the people of the Austin Stone in mighty ways to minister the gospel to this city that people would not have a category for us. They wouldn't know what to do with people so kind and people with such, such conviction. They wouldn't know what to do with someone who says, I love you, but I'm going to call you out on this and I'm not going anywhere. God, make Jesus the aim Make Jesus the goal. Make him the treasure. God, I ask these things because we are not strong enough to do them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand, sing together.